Welcome to Playmakers, the game industry podcast. Whether you work at a studio, publisher, service provider, or startup, this is the podcast that will give you all the information and entertainment you need to succeed in the game industry. Who am I? Just your friendly neighborhood veteran designer and producer, Jordan Blackman. In each episode of Playmakers, I go to work uncovering insights, tactics, and know-how from a wide range of game industry luminaries. My goal? To help you win the game of making games. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Welcome back to Playmakers Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Blackman, and this week I am interviewing Tyg Kelly. Tyg is a extremely experienced consultant in AR, in VR, in XR, really all the R's. And he also has a deep background in game design and production, working in mobile games, working in, you know, massive PC games. And he also has a lot of experience in partner development relationships. So really just a super experienced guy all around, somebody who has given some amazing talks at game industry events. And I've certainly learned a lot from him along the way. And that's why I wanted him on the show. Tyg has worked on all sorts of game projects from board games to live action role playing games to, you know, like I said, multi-million dollar PC projects. He served as a lead designer, as a senior producer. He's worked at Climax, at Lionhead, Magic Leap. So just a lot of great experience, a lot of innovation he's done in his career. And we cover lots of topics in this interview, including the transition that he made from a game designer to a consultant and what he learned on that path. He talks about something called the sexy worthy trap and how you can use it to your advantage when coming up with game concepts, designing games, releasing games to market, etc. We talk about balancing, you know, speed to market versus adding more features. We talk about the benefit of the game industry opening up to more diverse skill sets. He explains some simple mistakes that can get made at the beginning of a project that will cost those teams, those publishers over the long run. And we talk about the value of letting your team, letting your developers, letting your experts do their job and do it well. So I know you're going to get a lot out of this interview. You can find all the interviews that we do here at Playmakers at our website, playmakerspodcast.com. That's where you will find you know, the whole history of episodes, each one with their show notes and their links to the key things that we talk about on the show. If you get a lot out of this interview with Tyg, I would very much love it if you would share this with someone else who would be interested in it, someone else who you know wants to learn about game design, wants to learn about consulting, wants to learn about innovation in games. Those are the topics that we get into in those are the topics that if you know someone who's interested in them, please share the interview. That makes Playmakers Podcast grow. It makes you look cool to the person you share it with and the person who you share it with learn stuff and gets value and goes on to be massively successful and they give you 100% of the credit for the rest of their lives. So it really is a awesome thing to do. With all that said, let's get into the interview with Ty Kelly. Ty Welcome to Playmakers. It's great to have you on. <laughs> Thank you for having me. You are someone that I originally saw, basically saw you doing talks and learned from you. Um, I think you were doing like some monetization talks and it was great stuff. And, you know, it seems to me that you have a reputation. You've built a reputation over the years as an incredibly creative designer as well. I'm curious to learn a little bit about your journey. I know you've done hardware, you've done games. Take me through your kind of path in the industry. Yeah. My whole thing is I'm 47 years old now. I've worked in kind of the digital end as in like video game design development, all that sort of stuff for about 20 years. But prior to that, when I was a, like a teenager, 
like from the age of about eight, nine years old, something like that, I got really into trying to make like my own board games. I got super into Dungeons and Dragons when I was like 11 years old. Really what sort of started to kind of bring it together for me was I got very involved in a kind of an amateur con scene there. So I used to write and make kind of scenario games at first for like D&D kind of stuff for like tournaments. And for this con called GaleCon, which was and still is Ireland's National Games Convention. It was actually, it's quite a small, fun kind of event. And I got my sort of real start when I first started writing LARPs for that. So like these kind of tournament LARPs where you'd get like 50 people in a room and you're giving them all characters at once. And then over the course of like a weekend or something, you're trying to have like an emergent drama. How do you write an emergent drama? Yeah, so it's back in the day, at least it was, you'd sort of try and frame out a kind of a template plot for like key events that you wanted to have happen that would essentially happen kind of independent of the players because you needed that as a way to pull the action in. So like like a D&D campaign, essentially. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. Except it's huge and it's very kind of boiler pot scenario kind of thing. I spend a lot of time doing things like board game LARP crossovers and trying to come up with games where there was maybe more of a concrete system. So like I played around with a lot of that sort of thing and I got into, I made a three-dimensional racing game using a like a scale extra track kind of to make a board game version of Wipeout, the PlayStation game. Cool. I love Wipeout. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, I, I had this idea. I got a scale extra track, which involves loops and stuff. And then I had, I basically stole a bunch of rules from Formula Day around minimum and maximum move points at certain turns and like driver abilities and, and all this kind of stuff. And then the idea was that you would essentially have like a triangular piece that you were blue tacking around this like upended course, trying to like figure out, well, can I make this turn and stuff while trying to read it? <laughs> I feel like that could work now on Steam. Like people would go for yeah, some yeah. sort of turn-based racing game, you know, get attention. Right. I should totally patent that. <laughs> It's that kind of thing. Like I have that weird background and it probably wouldn't have turned into much of a career of any kind because again, Ireland, small. And I finished like university and I was kind of bumming around for a couple of years doing a couple of like tech writing jobs. Is that what you thought you were going to be doing? I didn't really know. I was actually very, in my mid twenties, I was very adrift. Then I met a, a mutual friend at a wedding and I've got introduced to Steve Collins, who was the CTO of Havoc. That's the um, physics engine. Yeah. And just, I had this brain sort of flash moment. I was like, oh, and so I harried him. <laughs> in the in during the course of the day i was like i know it's a wedding but like ugh, i really want to work on stuff and uh, and so they hired me after enough hiring havoc was cool oh yeah havoc was like super yeah, cool yeah, when it came totally, out yeah and really nice group a uh, bunch of people as well like really 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 fun team really ambitious and so i came on board as as the manual guy and i wrote the like havoc documentation and stuff like that for about a year maybe a year and a half um it, that job, unfortunately, then got nixed because of the dot-com crash. And again, I was back to being a bit, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I got it into my head to move to London and just see what life could maybe do if I was living in a bigger city, you know, and who knows what would happen from there and stuff. And uh, yeah, and so I moved to London and about six weeks later, it was a recruiter named Aardvark Swift. I think they still exist. They got me a junior designer job at this studio up in North London named Asylum Entertainment, who did like low mid-range kind of PS2 games. That must have been very exciting. It was crazy. It was, I, I couldn't believe it. Like I, I remember when I went to the interview, um, the guy who's the producer of the team told me afterwards that I was like, all over the place. I didn't really know what I was talking about, but I was making it like I was making all of these sort of like grand, like, well, what you really need to do is this. And then, you know, like, you know, you really need your difficulty curve to go up on a spike and stuff like that. And he was like, that's completely wrong. <laughs> and so on. But he just, You're hired. yeah, he thought I was weird. He was like, he's a really strange guy. So give him a job. Let's see what happens. <laughs>
<laughs> and uh, yeah, and and I immediately had one of the uh, I had one of the best years of my life. We were working on a game called Galador in the Dimensions of Tomorrow or something, which was some Lego franchise game from various things that Lego was trying, like kind of the same time they were trying things like Bionicle and stuff like that. But I had a blast, like sort of building levels and writing game design documents, and I wrote the story script, you know kind of thing i just i was just you know working like 12 hours a day but like actually loving it and maybe finding yourself a little bit because a little you said- bit yeah yeah very much so i mean it was i just kind of knew as soon as i was into it i just knew that i was doing something that i was good at and that was me like that was that was my ignition engine you know i i worked in quite a few places then in the uk for years afterwards i had a three-year stint at lionhead for instance i worked on a game called the movies which people have played apparently i remember it vaguely yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well it was cool i mean you know you're, you're in the molyneux zone where it, it's like <laughs> it's high drama <laughs> but it was very yeah you're down in the guildford zone it, it's all that what happened next take me from there so the movies came out and i uh, did okay but didn't do brilliantly we did have a sort of a follow-on deal to do what we now call a DLC pack, but it was actually like a CD-ROM that you could buy extra and stuff. It was a team that kept us going for about another eight or nine months, as I recall. And then I went to work for Climax Entertainment instead, a British kind of game dev that did just a lot of kind of console projects. And I think they still do. And I joined a team particularly that focused on handheld games. So they would make games for the PSP and the Nintendo DS. It was a little pre-mobile, but you know that sort of sort of small form factor type of stuff. So I, I joined initially as a game designer um, and I fairly quickly got promoted to be a lead designer. And then I worked on a very hard project that nearly killed me for about a year. What was that? <laughs> well, I'm actually not entirely. Well, yeah, OK, I could probably talk about it at this point. Um, I was the lead designer on a PSP version of Oblivion. Right. Climax did a lot um, of ports, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, a lot of ports, but a lot of adaptations as well. So um, they would do, they would take on games like Silent Hill or Oblivion or whatever. All right. So what was, sorry, what was the platform for Oblivion? The PSP, the Sony PSP. God bless wow. it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. Like it was, that. yeah, there was a lot about that project that was just super hard and a lot about it, which I honestly just, the idea is great. The technology does not able to quite match up to what's being promised and the hardware really can't deal with it at all like so just yeah craziness craziness from end to end you, you could see the appeal for the executives right like, oh yeah oh yeah. we put, yeah. put this on there you'll let us do that totally Great. totally totally but i think everybody who's worked in the industry long enough eventually runs up against a cliff project like this that really just is insane i remember that the producer on the the team was so tired that you know you just you'd find him like slumped in a corner a lot of the time people were sleeping here there and everywhere trying to make stuff work for me it was my first my first game that i worked on was that one which i think really? i was sort of lucky in that way yeah because i thought it was sort of normal what was the game and i was excited it was called joint operations it mm-hmm. was kind of a battlefield style game so it was a multiplayer shooter where you could fly a helicopter and drive a car and you know do all these different things yeah and it was great it was a really fun game but um it was you know it was one of these seven days a week for months and months and months exactly exactly where you just end up kind of like you're so in it it was i mean it was grinding is is the only word to describe it but i was the sort of person like a lot of people who are in games who just was kind of sticking in and sticking in and sticking in and sticking in and kind of hoping i could make it work and, uh, and that kind of stuff and then i had a family event which kind of broke me out of sort of that brain pattern if you like um which was a cousin of mine died 
I kind of grown up with him a bit and he was kind of the same age as me. And he just had a very sudden illness and passed away within like three, four days. And so then I went home uh, to Ireland for like a week um, to, you know, do funeral things and, and all that kind of stuff. So unbelievably kind of sad. And when I came back to work like a week later and to see like the team crazily in meetings, like yelling at each other about like whatever the hell else with the new design direction we were trying to do, yada, 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 yada. I just had this kind of moment where I was just like, oh, the hell with this. <laughs> Like, I, I, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And I resigned. My uh, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was like really happy to see me be not a grouchy human anymore again. And so it was the first opportunity then when I flipped over from doing kind of game design properly into being more of a manager type because I joined Sky Games. So Sky is a television station in the UK. I've heard about it because it's in songs that I've listened to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, I don't know if it still is anymore, but at the time it was still kind of part of the news corporation Murdoch kind of blob as well. So which was maybe a little controversial, but um, I just joined, it was this little team they did what they would call red button games. And a red button game is a game that works on like a TV set top box. So, you know, you've got like one meg of RAM maybe that you're working with. You've got a TV remote controller with like rubbery buttons, which is what that's what you're playing. And all most all of the games that are built for it are like tiny kind of licensed property stuff based on either like kids TV shows like for Nickelodeon or game shows like uh, things like who wants to be a millionaire my official title was the senior game development manager which in real world terms was essentially exec producer so all i really did was commission projects for nice little budgets deal with developers on a kind of a one remove basis evaluate builds release kind of plans together for them stuff like that and publish them once a week like rather than working on one game endlessly i was working on like all these tiny little casual games and we were seeing a lot of you know metrics behind this is the first time i ever encountered like game metrics the games actually monetized using a telephone call connection thing where like you'd be charged the price of a text or something to uh, to play the game it was really interesting. It gave me a lot of perspective on like the behavior of markets and particularly in the casual space, what kind of things they actually like and what sort of stuff is kind of a bridge too far. And I really enjoyed it for a long time. I, I very much kind of enjoyed not being in kind of quote unquote video games. But did you get into consulting from there? Yeah, a little bit after. The reason I left Sky was myself and a friend of mine decided we were looking at the blow up of Facebook and particularly at, you know, like the Zingas of this world. Like everyone else at that time. Right. Yeah. The Zingas and the Playfishes and all of that sort of stuff. We were just watching these games like rack up like millions of users a day and just being very like, oh my God, like, oh my God, you know? And so the idea that we had was like, well, can we not take some of this and maybe like put it in a Facebook wrapper somehow mm -hmm. and have like versions of games that we're putting up in a social network and that somehow we'll explore whatever this virality thing they're talking about is. We'll try and figure out how to do that. And so, um, so a friend of mine and I, we just were like, let's take a, let's take a punt. You know, why don't we just jump out in and see what happens? You know, maybe we can build a studio. Maybe we can like pull together some money and build a couple of prototypes of things. That may have worked well if it wasn't for the fact that the same month that we left our jobs and started up with the company, the like recession, the gigantic banking crash recession of 2008, the financial crisis, that whole thing rolled into town pretty much almost to the day. <laughs> Perfect timing. The climate in the UK for investment at the time was terrible, but turned out there was actually a huge avenue to build a consulting business out of it. Um, and so that's what we did. I just, I started writing, I wrote an article that I posted on uh, Gamma Sutra, which was called Zynga and the End of the Beginning, which basically talked about, well, look, this social game stuff's been around for a couple of years, but like what's actually happening. And that for whatever reason, back in the day, back when we didn't really know what Twitter was and stuff like that, it blew up hugely. And I got a lot of like really very 
powerful and influential folk emailing me from around the world, like um, Shervin Pishavar, who at the time ran Social Game Network and stuff like that, wanting to talk to us about like, you know, your insights in these things. Like, what is it you think about this kind of stuff? And that pretty quickly rolled into um, some work at the kind of media outlets in the UK, but it was all like advice on projects and helping to kind of break down things maybe that were already live for a long time but weren't doing that well and and so on it makes me think of something interesting which is the environments that may be really difficult for starting a studio might be really good for starting consultancies because it's times of uncertainty it's risk off and there's this big transition happening so i, I bet there was a lot of hunger for insight analysis perspective yeah, yeah. And that was very much kind of reinforced for me then over the next few years. There's a lot of people maybe who work within larger entities that really know that they're trying to engage with their market, but they don't have a lot of good perspective around what it is they're thinking about getting into. And so, you know, they they often go looking for well, who, who maybe seems like they're not talking out of their ass. And yeah, and then it's amazing how work like just kind of comes your way um, without really thinking about it. So long as you're kind of out there is the thing, so long as you're actually actively contributing to the community and, and that sort of stuff, like it's surprising how many people like to come to your door and just to hear you talk. Is this kind of the birth of what games are? Yeah. So what games are stemmed pretty much directly from having written that Gamma Sutra piece. And I was amazed to find that the whatgamesare.com URL was available. So <laughs> <laughs> so I yanked that and I put together a, a just a little blog and that really kind of kicked off a lot of other things for me as well. And it really sustained for one thing. People kept telling me that I was actually a pretty decent writer, which I never really knew before. That surprises me because you had done it at the technical writing and you had done all the. Yeah, but it's different. LARP. There's something. Yeah. I mean, I, I like a lot of people in our um, industry, I have a, quite a lot of imposter syndrome. And so, you know, I'm never, I'm not actually very good at being told that I'm good at something. Like it just makes me feel funny. It's, um, I'm a, my kind of default assumption is always that like, you know, I'm doing something kind of fake or like people will find out eventually or like that kind of thing. As I've gotten older, less so, but definitely I've had like periods of time where I just assumed that I'm, I'm kind of, you know, not really as good as I think I am or like that sort of stuff. As a result, like anytime I would see a success with something, it always kind of would blow my mind a bit, you know, or just, or I would be almost kind of shook by it or like, oh, wow, you know? I think that goes along with any sort of creativity because creativity being sort of birthed in the moment or sort of as you go, you can't rely on your past. You know, if you're doing something that's really predetermined, you know, you can just know it and be good at it. But if you have to come to work and do something new, then the fact that you did something good a week ago really doesn't help you much in terms of keeping that perspective. Not at all. And as the as your years go on through working in the industry, you really sort of see that a lot. Like you, you notice how the terms of reference in things change a ton. You notice how quickly it is that sort of like the successes of yesterday actually kind of age out. Like you find yourself in a position where you're, you're sort of talking about things that to you are still fairly relevant because there was only a few years ago but particularly as younger people are coming up in the industry they give you that like sure thing grand out kind of look well you were like this company climax games I'm like yeah climax right, games right, of course. right 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 <laughs> although when i was a kid i remember being kind of confused because there was climax games who made like land stalker mm -hmm. and what was shining in the dark or you know there yeah. was there was the japanese climax yeah, yeah. and then there was the and uk was, climax yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And they had uh, the uk climax was called climax studios so take me into some of what you learned in that consulting period i'm interested in like some of the things that you've developed over the years that you found really helpful or that have you know a lot of clients have benefited from for me it was it's a couple of things one of the things i always say to people is i became aware of the fact through consulting that the games industry is way bigger than any individual sector of the games industry realizes. There's a lot of people, for example, who work 
in, you know, console and PC gaming or like Steam indie stuff or that kind of thing. They think to themselves, I am the games industry, right? Like I am the games industry, Steam is the games industry, whatever. And the vast majority of them are unaware of, let's say, the casino industry or how massive that is. Or they're unaware of the sports industry or they're unaware of a lot of kind of niche PC RPG stuff that plays in browsers that comes out of, you know, Romania or like things like that. Like hardcore Sims. Right, right, right. Or, you know, games from like non-traditional territories. Like a lot of people in Britain are very aware of like games from the US and games from Japan, but nobody, almost nobody knows of games from Korea or China or, you know, Brazil or like stuff like that. Um, and I became aware of as well, like how many people peripheral to the games industry actually like we're maybe trying to figure out ways to sort of add gameplay to their product or that kind of thing but they really didn't have a single basic frame of reference for what it is they were trying to do and a lot of the times the, their kind of core ideas for what it is they thought they wanted to do were kind of on really 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 shaky foundations and so you know you, you just would realize that it's like a multi-headed kind of hydra there's a lot of different parts of the industry that sort of believe themselves to be the thing or to to, to be kind of literally pun intended what games are but they're not like they're only actually a part of it and they often speak in very different languages to different audiences across different demographics and all that sort of thing but they're often wrestling with very similar problems from one to the next they just have no idea that each exists yes so there, there might be solutions in one area that the other area isn't aware of yeah and some of them are actually kind of actively hostile to others like some of them have like very pointed opinions about the others but usually those are fairly misaligned there's a strong bias in hiring right like if you want to do console shooters well you need that triple a console shooter experience Absolutely. It's just it's just a line in the sand, whereas maybe there would be some benefit from companies being more diverse in the kinds of experiences they're looking for. That's right. That's right. And particularly like I, I've always felt that that's a big problem for the game design field in particular, because as game development itself has kind of expanded and gone into lots of different platforms, different areas, and has you know incorporated much larger teams and has a whole new disciplines like live ops and all that sort of stuff attached, you know, it's just led to this kind of natural need to find more and more kind of specialist talent and for designers in particular that means it tends to concentrate down toward people who know how to do one particular kind of design let's say economic design for example um, or that kind of thing but for me game design as a whole and maybe it's because of my experience having built larps back in the day and whatever for me like there's a holistic element to um to game design to like figuring out the overall kind of core of a game or that sort of stuff that is really independent of what device it plays on what technology it uses, what market it's in, like stuff like that. But it's increasingly difficult, I think, for that kind of game designer to justify their existence in most works. I don't think it's just you. <laughs> I think that a lot of game designers are attracted to the field because of all the different kind of media and modalities that are involved and are attracted to games because games is a space where this is one of the big things that brought me to the industry. It's a, it's a field where you could and can still make you know, grammatical level contributions. It's not like a finished thing. There's so much opportunity for fresh ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then sort of the other things that I kind of learned from that is that most of the time, most of the problems that studios kind of seem to have in my experience come down to really two things. One is that they often get themselves started on the wrong foot and then proceeded to go, go in that direction kind of regardless. So it's a little, I make an analogy a lot, but it's a little like, let's say, for example, you decide you want to build a train to Boston and you, you know, you start laying track and it's actually heading to Chicago. And then rather than sort of go, wait a second, pull up your track, go back and sort of start laying your track to Boston. You're just like, oh, we'll just keep building and we'll figure it out later on. <laughs> like that there's a momentum that comes with a lot of projects 
where they just they get baked into decisions that were made often somewhat accidentally very early on. And it really limits what they're going to be or what they're ever going to be. A lot of projects really sort of set themselves up for failure or success, like in their first month. I'm curious what you mean by that, because there's so many different ways for that to happen, right? That can be the tech, that can be sort of the concept that's chosen, that can be the core loop. Like where, wh when you say that, what are you thinking any of those things or, or is there something you have in mind? I'm mostly thinking about the the core kind of design decisions that are made early on. So yeah, yes, that's somewhat to do with the tech, it's somewhat to do with the target device platform, things like that. But I think it's a lot to do with kind of assumptions around gameplay and players and the psychology of play. I think like a lot of the time, you know, when you come across a game where it's just like the loop doesn't work at all or that kind of thing, it's usually down to some very, very, very axiomatic decision that was made way back when that, you know, the studio now regards as religion and is kind of unquestioning and all that sort of stuff but it tends to be the source of failure sort of over and over and over. I would love to dig in a little bit on that and like what some of the, some of those mistakes that people make are. Like a really good example is thinking that players will engage with a lot of formal decisions before they go and play a game. If you're making a game for mobile, right? Like where it's like that they'll, they'll like quite happily choose a lot of kind of like modes and stuff and rules and all this kind of thing before they'll press play on a game and then play their mobile game, which they will not do, you know, or um, another is kind of assuming that this is one that I get into trouble a lot for, but assuming that multiplayer as a feature, like synchronous multiplayer as a feature by itself is a thing that will attract a lot of players to a game. And uh, the, you know, it won't. It's like a, most successful multiplayer games generally actually come from having a strong single player component that essentially teaches the player how to play well before they get into dealing with the wider world. Another one is that I sort of personally also have gotten into trouble a lot with over the years is games that are based solely on the idea of a narrative and then we're going to add a game in somehow later on like that usually not always it usually means that you end up in a, a situation with a game where it's really great for like 10 percent of people who actually will play through more than five hours of it but a huge amount of people will fall out of it in the meantime or you know not find it particularly engaging or things like that a lot of the time it really comes down to i think just assumptions about how players will relate to the game how they feel about play in general what they're kind of likely interaction pattern is based on the device, what their likely interest is based on market, like things like that. You know, it's one that I see a lot is, I don't know what to call it, the slightly better than fallacy, which is like, oh, that product's successful. We'll just, I have, we have some, a couple ideas about how to make it a little bit better. And then, hey, if we get 10% of the market, yeah. we are better yeah. with our thing, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. Oh, the market for this is like 100 million players. If we just get 1% of that, then dot, 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 dot. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but you won't. So <laughs> what's your plan if you get 50,000 players? A feature improvement is is a big one. You, you run across that with teams who are engineer focused or that kind of thing. Like, because they, a lot of the times, like those kinds of guys, they might come straight out of college or they might come out of like having worked in app development or things like that. And they, they often have an idea in their head that that sort of genre success in games is really just about building the best sprocket. So, you know, that they're like, well, look, our, our engine can do this more, or, you know, we have this feature or, you know, ours is like that game, but like, we also add this, you know, and stuff like that. And what they usually fail to really understand at all is that the vast majority of time a successful game is not successful because of any one individual mechanic or, or sprocket or things like that. Occasionally it's true, but most of the time it's not. It's usually much more to do with uh, market timing, brand timing audience appeal, niche interest, novelty. There's a lot of different, depending on 
which market you're in. There's a lot of different potential factors that it can be, but mostly it's driven by not seeing a game that's the same as the other thing that they've played a bunch, you know? Totally. And I think that's the biggest thing. The flip side is, is there are certain genres where it's like the audience has chosen a genre king already. And so anyone, anyone who comes into that space thinking they're now going to be the genre king usually runs up against the problem that essentially the players they're trying to get are, are already existing in another game. Maybe they drift over for like a month to check out the competitor, realize that ah, it seems like so much more work to like, you know, build up to where I was and they drift back towards whatever the genre king was. And my friends are already over on that other product. And usually the other product, they actually know what their players want next. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to take them down, you have to make a guess. Yeah, you have to like assume that they're going to care about something or that there's something in your game that's like more exciting. And most of the time, whatever that more exciting thing is, is not more exciting enough to um, to attract them across like long term. You know, I wrote another article that I wrote in Gamma Sutra years ago that people kind of ping me about from time to time and talked about this. I called it the sexy worthy trap where it's like the vast majority of the time developers will think that success in any given genre or whatever of games involves being basically being worthier than the opponent. So it's like, you know, having better technology, having better features, having better whatever. And they misunderstand entirely that it's really actually about being sexy, being different, being unusual, being weird, being not the thing that everybody else is doing. And, uh, and that if you're sexy, sure, you might fail, you might very well fail. But if you do happen to kind of strike on the right kind of mix of things, you're also much more likely to succeed. Your chance of sort of being able to stand out from the pack is much higher if your game isn't the same thing as everything everybody else has kind of been robotically building, you know? Totally. But unique is better than better. Yeah, <laughs> totally, you know? And it, and it can have like enormously outside success if it works. You know, it's like games like Among Us or Minecraft back in the day. Farmville, in a sense, if you think of it that way, you know, that there's there's a lot around, around that sort of stuff. Some of it is around kind of beating awareness. I mean, Farmville, I know, for example, had farm town or there's a half a dozen other farm games before it but it was you know zynga was really really good at essentially advertising like lunatics to the point that they acquired players before other games essentially had a chance to grab their attention and then from there you know it's like they're effectively first to the perception of those players and therefore they are the genre king you're often working in a space where if you've got a lot of games that look like yours like you really get lost and if you've got a lot of mechanics that work exactly the same as yours on other games, you you absolutely get lost and stuff. Some markets are worse for that than others. Obviously, mobile is pretty brutal because it's really easy to get like predatory developers who will just come along and clone everything and all that sort of stuff. Being sexy is hard, but it actually often works. So. I think that's a really important distinction you made between being first and being king because, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about Blizzard, you know, Blizzard was almost never first, but they pretty much always managed to become the king. So you can take down a king. You can conquer a king. You just need to be very careful about, you know, which king you're going to go after and, and what's your strategy for actually getting the job done. You need to be very intentional about the thing that you're building. If Blizzard, say, for example, had come out with, with World of Warcraft, say, way back when, if they come out with that and it was it looked exactly the same as EverQuest, but with spells or, or you know, but with an extra thing, that thing would have sank like a rock. You know, that it's it's much more about, like Blizzard has always valued art. They've always valued really high production values. They've always had a really signature kind of style to the kind of games that they make. And um, they've always been able to like take that and apply it to games that sure belong in a certain genre, but really roll their own mechanic mix, you know? And then, and then from there, like really stand out away from like what everybody else is doing in the field. And that is sexy. They have an audience, right? So they can, they build games that they know their audience is going to love. They had battle.net. 
I do think, and I was never a big Warcraft player, but didn't they have the thing where the world was like split down the middle and you could be like in the human or orc or whatever? Like there were the two. I think so. Yeah. It's... Starting paths <laughs> yeah. and like the whole world was split. So that was a pretty unique. I think so. They I, had something. I think so. I think. I think so. I mean, I think if you I'm ask, not sure. If you ask Ralph Coster, he'd probably tell you that that's in no way innovative because they did so much of that sort of stuff on the MMOs that he worked in back in the day. But yeah, like probably to a lot of players who maybe hadn't thought about playing MMOs before, that was like, wow, you know, you could be good and evil or you could be human and orc or um, or that sort of stuff, you know. EverQuest was also very hard to approach. I mean, it was very hardcore. There was You'd wait for hours and hours online to find certain creatures and the onboarding took forever. And... I suppose the other kind of major thing that I've kind of pulled in from all my experience and consulting a lot and just working with a lot of developers and both internally up platforms and and even working at magically at the last few years um and all that sort of stuff is to me i apply a very kind of player's eye view to design and uh, i particularly i'm a big fan of of writing design documentation for example that is in no way colored as in like there's not a lot of kind of waffling about like what the fiction is supposed to be or who the story of the characters are or their motivations and all that sort of stuff and is very functional and very like you know when i press a b happens when i press c d happens but i'm also a big fan of doing that writing it from the point of view of how a user sees it rather than actually explaining what the rules underneath actually do because the way I kind of look at it a lot from from a game designer, and this is different from being a board game or, a, or an RPG designer or that kind of stuff. My view is as a video game designer, I'm not actually designing like what the system does. Engineers do that and they are better at doing that than I am. What I'm designing is what the, the system appears to do, which is a, like a fundamentally different thing. And oftentimes what that means is I'm designing relationships between things. So, the, you know, pot of gold A becomes pot of stars B becomes you know, horse C or whatever, as experienced by what a user sees. Like I click this, I see that, I do that. Rather than worrying excessively about like what the math of that is supposed to be, you know, not really going like, oh, you know, there's an 8% chance of this, or there's a 19% chance of that, or here's a spreadsheet of death that I've built, which will like somehow kind of explain all of that sort of stuff. Would you do any spreadsheeting for something like that? Yeah, but like very kind of A to B to Z type of stuff. I'm very negative uh, designers getting basically too far into the weeds on that sort of stuff. Like I tend to, when I've had teams working for me before, I've tend to really knuckle down on people like essentially trying to pseudo code on paper or that kind of thing. Because it's been my experience that once you get to the point of trying to then figure out how to balance that sort of stuff, you're murdered because you have, you, you start to develop black box problems very fast. You start to develop a problem where like you tweak value A and then somehow value D changed, even though you don't know why like that sort of thing or you you know you changed behavior a and suddenly like npcc has this like amazing tactic that he's using against everybody and you're like why is it doing that i don't you know that sort of thing where you're like why is the game doing that i'm really 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 stern <laughs> on preventing that kind of thing by like encouraging designers to go just think of it like a human sees it like stop worrying about what the engine can do stop worrying about what the dice rolls underneath it are supposed to actually be that doesn't matter that's actually very fungible and changeable and stuff um but worry much more about like whether an actual interaction will make sense to a human first and foremost right from then from there you can worry like if it turns out that sure it's got balance issues or whatever it's or it pays too much gold that's an easy problem to fix like once you're into the well, I'm just changing values and stuff. But if you fundamentally built something that's kind of nested and weird and produces a lot of wacky outcomes and stuff, you're going to spend nights and weekends trying to figure out, you know, the right balance of numbers to make that thing behave kind of vaguely like you think it should. And that's going to eat up all your time to actually make it good rather than just make it work. I think that does make a ton of sense. I've never heard it put in that hardcore way, but I like it because I think 
what a lot of designers do is spend so much time thinking about the system that they lose sight of what really matters, which is the outputs to the user. That's right. So to me, it's like I, I make a real distinction in my mind between like the schema, if that makes any sense. You know the way you, you know when you use a UI, it's like a user builds a schema in their mind of what they think is going on, right? So the schema of a game to me is that, but for like what the mechanics seem to do or like that sort of stuff versus, yeah, the actual system underneath it, which is, you know, the, the crazy ball of math and code that is generating the kind of the results. And to my mind, it's like the schema is what needs to make sense to the players, independent of what the machine is actually doing to try and deliver that result. And then for me, it's like a game designer actually should be trying to build that schema to make sense and then essentially let the engineers do their job, which is to be creative in solving a code problem that you've presented to them. Like you wouldn't ask the writers to design the systems that are going to, but but here's here's my question. Do you have to then, change the way you hire engineers? Um, you definitely need to have engineers who can understand what's being asked of them. Some of that is down to how design, how well designers express themselves in specs or that kind of thing. You, you know, if I get out my technical writer editing pen and go through like a lot of specs, it can be a lot of like, no, 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 no. Just, you know, take all of this extraneous stuff out. Just tell me what the actual thing does. I often ask as a kind of a writing exercise, I'll ask design students to write a design document from the point of view of the second person. So literally like you do this, game does that and like almost like as though they're writing a choose your own adventure novel where you're like they're really trying to explain what do you see when something happens because when you can get what you see into someone's minds whether like an engineer or whatever they often then go oh and then they're able to run off and kind of figure out and maybe like the first go is not quite right or whatever or maybe in the first build rush of building it they come across something that works better than what this the spec kind of initially kind of came up with but the act of doing that i think really helps sort of like get things on the right track in the first place. I think that's a super interesting and useful tip. I, I've done that second person kind of exercise, but only for, you know, a couple pages to, this, to to get the idea across of a concept or a mechanic, not as like the baseline kind of method. Yeah, it's hard is the thing. Trying to write documentation like that, which is basically all active verb, second person perspective, completely extraneous of details, very, there's a lot about like making sure the grammar isn't full of like bullet points and, and bolds and excessive kind of quote marks and all this kind of stuff. So it's legible and simple is it, it takes a lot of kind of practice and a lot of effort. It's very easy to fall into the passive voice, for example. I want to clarify one thing for people who might be listening and thinking about trying this. When you say um, without extra details, what level of detail do you have in mind? Because I was originally thinking relatively detailed just from the user experience point of view. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean like even removing details from the experience? No, I, I give you, I give you an example. So years ago, I was working for the first job that I had when I moved over to the US was I was working for a company named um, Jawfish Games and we were trying to build synchronous mobile multiplayer games as a, a thing and trying to make that technology work and, and all that sort of stuff. And there was a particular game that I was working on, which was a sort of a bingo, multiplayer bingo equivalent where you had a much larger grid than a normal kind of bingo kind of game does. And you were trying to like just set all these squares so people could kind of daub a whole lot of things and try and make rows and all this kind of stuff. And I remember I'd like, I was writing up a design for it and you know, the, the field itself was like, I don't know, I think it was like 10 by 10, maybe 12 by 12. And I was trying to come up with a, a way to describe how the field would uh, be auto-generated with a set of numbers at the start, but that they would kind of all cluster in certain ways so that you wouldn't have lots of edge case numbers at the edges and stuff like that. And like, I wrote this like multi-page description. It's like this, it's like these rows do this and this, these columns do that and all this kind of stuff. And I handed it to one of my in, uh, engineers and he just was like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, he, cause he's like, literally, it, what does it do? And, and I found myself going like, well, 
Well, it's like, well, well, it's like, it's, it's like, imagine this number does this, but then if like, if that works, then it, it kind of goes like that. And da, 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 da. and then like after about an hour, he's like, why don't you just tell me to generate some stuff and we'll kind of see what happens. So I went, oh, so we wrote like a much shorter spec that said numbers fill in here and it's mostly in the middle that they're kind of clustered. That's it. <laughs> right. And then he's able to, he was able to go off and solve that and enjoy solving it rather than have me tell him how to suck eggs. <laughs> and do you know what I mean? And, right. and it worked perfectly fine and i didn't need to have gone and done all that crazy work <laughs> it makes so much sense because that literally is right. software engineering right and, and yep. object-oriented design and all these things that the yeah. engineers uh, trained and experienced in doing and the other part of it is i noticed that over the years of sort of like doing this kind of stuff one of the things i realized that as a designer when i was being overly deep in the weeds uh, and all that sort of stuff is just, i was really taking the joy out of the job for a lot of engineers that like what's often kind of forgotten i think in game dev is like engineering itself is a fairly creative discipline like it's creative toward like trying to find the best solution to things but you know it's like any kind of professional creative it's like if you imagine you were writing a game design document and you were like trying to specify exactly the art style for all the characters or some shit like this you know rather than letting the artists go cool we run away with it in concepts and stuff and see what we come up with and that kind of thing, that collaborative kind of thing. With engineering, it's the same. If you over-specify a game design down to the nth degree, all you're doing is killing your engineer's ability to be innovative and essentially trying to tell them how to do their jobs, which you shouldn't do. You know, it's it's actually extremely counterproductive. And so, yeah, that particularly is a, a problem that a lot of game designers who were engineers before that um, often kind of have to sort of unlearn. Like a lot of them come into it going like, I actually know how the engine works. I know how these objects work. Da -da 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 -da. So here's exactly what I wanted to do and all this kind of stuff. And, and it just makes their team go like, there's a better way, you know, or. You know, it's like, get out of my patch, you know, <laughs> like, you know, go sit at your desk. This is my desk. I do the thing here. You you do the thing at the other desk. That's what we do, you know? So yeah, so I, I'm very, I'm very formalist in a sense, but it's because I'm trying to basically unmask a lot of things and make it very simple for everybody else to do their stuff. And once you do that, I think the result is coherent. And when it's coherent, then it's play testable. And when it's play testable, then you can actually see what it's doing, what doesn't work, what does work. And you can like very linearly solve those problems rather than like, you know, you've built a kind of a spooky box and now you don't know really what it does and you don't know why it doesn't do it. I want to turn a little bit to a, a different topic, which is you know, you, you've worked on several hardware projects over the years. We didn't get into that on your career journey, but I know that you worked on, well, there was that red button product that you talked about and there was Ouya, Ouya, am I saying Ouya? Ouya, yep. What else? Magic Leap, right? Magic Leap is the third one, yeah. Okay, yeah. so, you know, I think what's really interesting about this, and this is something that you brought up before we started recording, was the relevance of these new platforms for developers, maybe new developers or indie developers that are trying to catch a break. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that. There's a couple of things that, that always kind of happen when a new platform obviously kind of looks like it, it might be a thing. Um, one is that, you know, it attracts a lot of kind of younger developers, a lot of more um, developers maybe who work in more indie spaces and, uh, and that kind of stuff. A lot of them are trying to sort of figure out essentially how to, to sort of get on board with something that maybe has a lot of tailwind behind it already and therefore you know maybe sort of help grow their success in uh, in ways that like working in like very very stuffed platforms maybe doesn't anymore you know being rovio back before mobile gaming was like a thing you know and then sort of figuring out how to be rovio even just with like that first angry birds game and like ride it to a gigantic fortune and then sort of from there go where well, we're you know we're kingpins of the world and stuff there's no way angry birds would do that well if it were released now no no not 
course, not anymore. No, because it's now it's in it's that sexy worthy thing. There's probably people out there thinking, I just need to build a better anti birds and But it's like you're way too late, man. <laughs> you know, like at a, it's not mobile's not sexy like that anymore. Nobody writes about it in national newspapers anymore and goes, "There's this game that I'm playing." Oh my god, you know. There are still people who are like, "I need to make the next jetpack joyride." Yeah, <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly, exactly. And so, so there's all of that. And so, yeah, so trying to find the edges, trying to find like blue oceans rather than red oceans, like that sort of thing. But then the flip side, of course, is there's a lot around trying to understand what the platform actually wants or what like is going to work within the bounds of the platform and, and that kind of thing. And that can be, I think, for a lot of developers, like that's a very hard act of navigation. VR has been a lot of that the last few years. You know, it's been really trying to understand like what's going to make it work. What are the different outlet devices like Oculus or whoever? Like what are they what are they look, looking for? Like where's the development money to be found, to be honest? Like that kind of thing. That's the other side of it. You mean what are the companies that own these platforms looking for? Yeah, a lot of the time. Like there's a lot of developers who, who kind of, they really want to have a conversation with you that basically says please tell me what to build right because like what's the project you want type of thing because that will be a key property on that platform maybe or i can become like a founding type or stuff like that you know and so i mean it's understandable it's just it's a tough act to balance sometimes and what are we balancing here we're balancing yeah for developers sort of trying to understand whether things are actually kind of a viable opportunity or whether they're actually kind of trouble. I see. You don't know if you're going to be one of the first releases on the Nintendo Wii, which was, you know, a lot of people didn't believe in, or you're going to be one of the first releases on, I don't know, Oculus Rift, which was really hard to sell on, you know? Exactly. Like Ouya had a huge amount of developer interest, like at its very start, you know, before things kind of went sideways. And a lot of people like trying to, you know, bring their builds of things to Ouya first or, um, or that sort of stuff. And there was a, like, a lot of kind of groundswell support that it would work. And then when it, didn't so much of a scramble then to try and get out from under it maybe or you know go go to steam which was having a renaissance at the time or like those kinds of things what do you think was the challenge with with ouya well i think it was three things one was it, it there was a lot of marketing missteps with ouya early on there were there's a lot of things where like they were trying to understand like who their audience was or or that kind of thing and sort of coming down on the idea that it was sort of like a small xbox or like a cheap console or those kinds of things, but that was never anything that the dev community particularly cared about. At the time when it was very new and like kickstarted and all that sort of stuff, the thing that really appealed to a lot of people and at that, that time was that console was such a closed up business. Like there was no real way to get on Xbox 360 after a certain point unless you had deep relationships with Microsoft because they had such uh, attitude, they had a very throttle attitude to like when content would come out and what content they wanted and, and all that sort of stuff that it just, there wasn't room to do anything and the same with um sony and nintendo same thing like they didn't really like they didn't really have an indie wing really right. they just were like we just make our stuff digital was very throttled and yeah physical exactly and there were a lot of developers crazy. who maybe had had a couple of years working on android who were like oh but i can make stuff a lot of young devs particularly and just like trying to you know trying to figure their way through but sort of by the time it actually came out that had already started to change and steam was start had started to open up a lot more ps4 was on the horizon and actually they were talking a lot about you know commissioning projects from indies and being very friendly to indies and sort of like that kind of thing and and really kind of trying to get their hands on as many kind of cool indie titles as possible and in the midst of all that uyu was not uh, doubling down on that sort of like that we were a home blue platform that you know that sort of represents kind of an alternative channel they actually were trying to market a lot as as kind of like we're the little console that could and it just didn't didn't go it didn't go where anywhere uh, with anyone the other thing is there was a technical misstep 
which is they based the console around the Tegra 3. It was a mobile device, basically, yeah? Yeah, whatever the version of the Tegra was that was just before what could support shaders. Oh. And yeah, just before that point. And so shaders boomed across the universe when Unity kind of, you know, and all that sort of figured that out. And every Unity's like, oh my God, right? And then we were happened to accidentally be on the like a platform that actually didn't run them well at all and so it's the little xbox that performs worse than your mobile phone yeah i mean it's a way to say it is one of those things it's completely unpredictable at the time but it meant that for a lot of developers there was a lot of porting cost suddenly that maybe didn't need to be there you know and stuff like that and so a lot of them started go like yeah and then the word the dev community totally gossips and so like the word got out among them pretty fast that actually they weren't you know a lot of software wasn't selling a lot of units on yeah or like that kind of thing and, uh, and they just knew it wasn't working. We had on Tommy Tallarico, who's doing the Amico. Are you familiar with that project? No, not super. No, no. They basically rebooted in television, and they have a new piece of hardware coming out called the Amico. Oh, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you about it offline. I'm curious to hear your your thoughts on it. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're making a big play to do a new piece of hardware, and you know, I wish them the best of luck. Absolutely, yeah. Hardware is a really, really, really tricky beast. Like, there's a lot more companies have failed at hardware than succeeded. You know, and there's a lot of bets that are made in hardware that that are made made on somewhat kind of shaky foundations. And, uh, and that kind of thing. And, it, you know, it can go very, it can go really wrong really fast and very expensively. But yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, they have a lot going for them. You know, they've got the right brand. Obviously, mm -hmm. everyone knows Tommy. And, yeah. you know, they've got a lot of cool content coming. They're doing basically trying to kind of redo the Wii, like collaborative, family-friendly. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, lower end. It is sort of a, you know, somewhere in that same, like, mini yeah. console Sort of uh, space. category yeah, yeah each controller has its own screen so oh, it nice. also has okay. like some unique or some really cool unique capabilities yeah so it's great but obviously yeah also you know supply chain challenges right now are a big deal so nobody can get microchips for gold dust absolutely <laughs> exactly so before i let you go i wanted to ask you your thoughts on you know where things are going and particularly you know over the last year yeah. there's been a lot of change yeah, in the yeah. world <laughs> you know, an acceleration of a lot of trends. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious kind of how you perceive the industry changing and what you see as the impact of what's been going on. Several years ago, I probably was one of those people predicting the death of the console. You know, there, I'm sure that there are articles on my site from like seven, eight years ago talking about how, you know, certain hardware is going to get up to a certain parity, that there's going to be a need for or want for the audience to have like an easier way to game, like and things like that, you know, stuff maybe kind of very predictive of like, say, cloud streaming or that kind of stuff. And almost none of that has proved to be true. That the, the amount of appetite amongst even the younger audience, the amount of appetite for like changing up their way of gaming and stuff like that um, has been a lot smaller than a lot of people sort of predicted that it would be, you know, that we're we're in a situation where 10 years ago, we were all kind of trying to buy like high-end PCs and all that sort of stuff. But then thinking, ah, the PC is going to tap out as a technology at some point, 10 years later, people are still doing the exact same thing. They're still queuing for miles to try and get graphics cards for $3,000 ago, you know, murdering themselves, trying to get their hands on PS5s. Xbox Series X's, like all of that sort of thing. It seems like almost accelerated because of YouTube and streaming yeah. and Twitch. And that's it. It's become a much more like the audience is actually, rather than liberalizing, the audience is actually stratified to a huge degree. And that their sense of like wanting to play in other venues and stuff like that is minuscule. You know, I mean, mobile remains like the big, the biggest obvious difference in that respect. But again, it mostly is talking to a completely different audience from your kind of standard sort of 
PC or console kind of types and stuff, you know? Um, and I personally don't see that particularly dissolving anytime soon. I think that certainly over the next few years that those kind of verticals are, are just going to double down a lot. I think that you're going to see Nintendo will produce a Switch Pro, I hope. Supposedly they're announcing it like in a week or something. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, I really, I've wanted it for ages because I love my Switch, but because I got slightly older eyes that need progressive lenses and stuff, the screen is too small for me. <laughs> like I literally need it to be bigger so I can see things. <laughs> I 100% play it on my television. It's a it's you a know? dock device for me. I know, but I I want to be able to bring it in the airport and stuff. But then I'm trying to like read text in like Octopath Traveler or whatever, and I'm just like I I can't quite make it out, you know. But yeah, I mean, it's it's I think it'll be a lot of that sort of stuff. I think the big question for me, obviously, because I've just come out of working in the XR space for years, is like whether VR and AR is is going to find its way, whether it's going to find its its kind of path to freedom. And that's very much an open question at the moment. I hope maybe there's some signs with what Oculus is doing. The Quest 2 is actually a really good piece of hardware, for instance. Are they managing to actually talk to people yet in the right way? Are they managing to actually turn people's heads or, or not? And what might that mean? Beyond that, like the cloud streaming stuff seems like it's not really working out that it it maybe is becoming another one of those sort of surgy kind of areas where like every tech company decides they're going to get in on it because like it's what everybody else is getting in on as well but that the the player numbers are not really you know there or that kind of thing certainly i mean i've been a stadia pro subscriber for a couple of years but it feels like it's really struggling a lot to figure out what it is or what it wants to be when it grows up has that been a good experience for you, just as an end user? You know, the real surprise is it actually is. Yeah, it's it's a very unusual thing for me, at least, because I, for years, I thought on live and all the rest of it was just doomed because of latency issues and stuff. But then I played with uh, my first Stadia. I played like Destiny and I played Metro Last Life, I think, and or Metro, one of the Metros and that kind of stuff. And it worked really great. You know, I had fiber in the house. It's pretty much on a router, which is right by where the fiber is, stuff like that, and off a Chromecast, which is hooked up to that TV. So I'm as close to like the gate as possible, you know, to the pipe, whatever, but it works. It it, it really is super sprinty. The issue is more, it's business right. model doesn't make any sense. And it's positioning, like how it's sort of trying to brand itself and stuff does not work at all. Like it, it feels like a retro service maybe, or like it's always trying to sell content that's actually six months old, or um, it's always trying to make it kind of a, a hullabaloo over um, stuff that just sort of feels like it's kind of a bit DOA. That sort of tech probably is the future, but it does seem like that's still a ways out. I mean, I bet it is, but I bet it ends up becoming the future, but it's under the banner of working on an Xbox. I bet you it becomes something where it's a technology that works, but the user doesn't actually realize that that's what it's doing. Like that it becomes sort of like seamless downloading. Yeah, I think Microsoft's hybrid model is a much better play for a transitionary period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a technology that the industry needs, but it's not a consumer solution that consumers particularly need. And so like, it's really just a kind of a back end thing. Now, speaking of Microsoft, Game Pass is one of these new things that does seem to be playing out. Super well. Yeah, super well. Have you used it? I use it almost every day there you go like right? probably you know four times a week or something it's like great that. you know it's just really it's really simple <laughs> you know unlike stadia which has made its life complicated it's just really really simple to understand and it's really great value microsoft has learned to just not get in the way of that and that's fantastic that's why it works i think 
Anything else in terms of trends that you want to cover? Having had a lot of experience, particularly with the AR world, you know, I would I would really like to see one of the um, the smaller form factor of glasses kinds of headsets or whatever come out. I think there's a potential for something to happen there. There's about nine things that need to happen before it can happen. But like, nevertheless, I'd love to see that that sort of style of a device sort of become something. I had a privileged position at Magic League to see a lot of kind of apps and developments that really did work. Like they worked in rooms and, you know, you could do things like set up a solar system in your living room and like have it kind of spin the planet earth around you and all this kind of stuff and it you know it's actually pretty decent fidelity and occluded properly and all that sort of thing but it was you know with a headset that's quite heavy and very techy but nevertheless the, the kind of the core idea actually does work i'm curious what is the sort of physical interaction capability like if you had a ping pong table can you have an experience that feels anything like hitting a ball sort of you won't get the tactile feel obviously because there's no ball there right but there's a lot around things like is your if you're using a controller, for example, is it actually precise enough or does it feel a bit flaily? Or, you know, if it's trying to use like hand recognition, same thing. And like does it actually track your hand positioning kind of one to one? I would say all of those are sort of like areas for improvement, sure. But I remember like I played a multiplayer version of Dr. Broadport, which was Magic Leap's kind of sci-fi shooter. And it was very fiddly to try and set up. Um, to get two headsets going and a server and com you know communicate with it all and all that kind of thing and then like actually run around the canteen and work like shooting at each other behind tables and chairs and all that sort of thing and you know it was a bunch of things that kind of half worked with it and there's a bunch of stuff that maybe because it was a dev an early dev version that was kind of like in need of improvement and all that sort of stuff but you know what it freaking worked it was cool <laughs> right and you could see beginnings of like maybe how this would be a thing you know um similarly like art packages where you're like actually graffitiing your wall or something like that using, you know, but in AR or whatever, it works. It's a thing. You can, you can do it. It's just, it's not widely known yet. And it's not, most people have not had the experience and most people don't have the money to buy, you know, a HoloLens 2 or whatever. Curious what you think. My, my gut about those sorts of experiences, obviously there's the price issue and the difficulty, but once that stuff is dealt with, it sounds like it's great for children. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. There's there's one fairly big roadblock around get, getting kids kind of using systems like that, which is that there's a lot of concern around optic development and the impact on their their eyes, literally, and, and that kind of thing. And so there would be a lot of governmental worry, particularly around um, whether a device would be licensed for eight-year-olds to use on the basis that like you're kind of shining beams in their eyes or whatever. And it's like, well, does that actually have, you know, impacts on the developments of young retinas and, uh, and stuff like that? So, yeah, so I, I know you're saying, but at the same time, it's, it's, I think it's a ways off being proven that it's kind of safe for, for juvenile users and that kind of thing. Is Apple going to do something? Everybody says Apple's going to do something. Who knows? <laughs> okay. I don't know. I thought maybe you did. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I mean, it's, man, that is the biggest rumor around the campfire and it has been in AR and it has been for years. It's like, you know, when are the eyeglasses going to happen? Right. Along with the Apple car, right. Apple TV. Right. Right. Exactly. And Right. The exactly, Apple microwave. Exactly. I mean, historically, Apple doesn't tend to define markets like that. They tend to sort of wait and see for it to kind of be proven out and then figure out how to make a good product out of it. They're the blizzard of hardware. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Tig, thank you so much for coming on on the show and sharing all this with us. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's been, it's been really fun. It's been really fun. It's been, wow, we talked for like two hours. <laughs> it's easy to do with you. <laughs> Next time we'll do it over some yeah, wine. Thank you. <laughs>
If you're interested in giving some feedback on what you'd like to see on future episodes, you can also reach out to me there. And in the meantime, if you want to support what we do, the way to do that is to write us a review and subscribe. I will see you on the next episode. We have some great stuff coming your way. So I will catch you then on Playmakers. Hey, are you still here? The episode is over. So if you're here, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're going to go on and listen to some more episodes. Hope you're going to leave a review and all that goodness. But I also wanted to just remind you that I am doing, it's sort of an experiment right now to see if this is something that people want, that people are responding to with coronavirus, with 2020, with the move to remote work, with the move to distributed development. Do you need help finding the right resources, the right external partners? I will do my best to help you. Drop me an email, jordan at brightblack.co. We'll figure out exactly what your need is, and uh, and I'll do my best to point you in the right direction. Simple as that. Okay, uh, thanks. Have a great year. Hmm, how do I say this? <laughs> Have a great day. Catch you later. <laughs>